0: Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altai, meet with ear opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together and a highly generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to a highly Conversations. Our guest today is curator, author and educator Anna Devic. Anna is best known as a member of the curatorial collective What, How and For Whom, also known as Wehawe, Formed in 1999, Vehaver is an exemplary case in the history of curatorial studies. Until today, they curated numerous exhibitions, amongst which are Collective Creativity in Kassel and What Keeps Mankind Alive, the 11th Istanbul Biennial from 2009, two exhibitions that will be written up in any history of exhibitions, if you ask me, for the 21st century. Anadevich is also in charge of the International Study Programme for Young Artists, which is called Vehave Academia, based in Zagreb. Together with Anna, we will further our exploration into other modes of engaging with artistic practice and hear about possibilities within and through art and politics. Her take on collectivity as a spark rather than a value in and of itself, her emphasis on encounters and accessibility within formal and informal modes of learning were really thought-provoking. We also venture into new technologies in the Q&A session and we get to observe Anna's generous and open approach, live and in action. As always, there's an extensive list of references that we cover in our episode notes, so make sure to check them out for further links. And for the more visually oriented, we are sharing images of works, or codes that are mentioned on Instagram. So check us out at ahali.podcast. This episode's conversation is part of the collaborative project Communities of Learning Bridging the Gap of Isolation, initiated by Wehave and supported by the Culture of Solidarity Fund of the European Cultural Foundation. So with that, I would like to welcome Anna to Ahali Conversations. Welcome, Anna.
1: Thank you, John, And also warm greetings from Zagreb to all members of Ahali community. Nice to be with you guys.
0: Thank you so much. So Anna, if you don't mind, I'd like to start from this notion of collectivity because it's also so much rooted in your history as a group and also as a kind of curatorial, let's say, practice. But also it's very much central to the concerns of Ahali. And I know that it's something not so always easy to achieve. I'd like to start with this notion of collectivity on a, let's say, smaller scale of working together and then how to expand that, how to build and how to maintain collectivity in your opinion.
1: Thank you, John, for this wonderful intro. I totally agree with you. The notion of collectivity and the spirit of collectivity is this kind of uh, super important ingredient in many social and cultural processes. For the formation of the collective, creativity was, I would say, like the most important trigger that also somehow happened as a byproduct of our way of working together. Mm. So it didn't start at like, okay. Let's get together and let's create a collective. This happened with time, with this very intense process of exchange, imagination, working together also on many different practical levels and uh, forming something that can work like a front so that the collectivity always, let's say, includes also this extra layer or extra member of certain artistic group or collective members and colleagues from Irving group, from Ljubljana. Mm. They always said that they have this extra member of Irving Group. And in the case of Bechave, we started as a collective of uh, four curators. And there is always this moment that these extra members of our collective are quite flexible and that this kind of a spirit we try to translate and to bring to different processes. You also mentioned collective creativity. As mm-hmm. reference that was important for you. And while working on that exhibition, we claim that in the group and in the collective work, there is this surplus, this kind of a surplus that can potentially be of emancipatory kind. But since the very beginning, while thematizing and working with collectivity, we were also quite critical in a sense that we claim that collectivity is not a kind of a value per se, Mm. but because now more than two decades of our curatorial and cultural work is marked by collectivity. I, these days, kind of tend to see collectivity as some kind of a spark Mm -hmm. that can be ignite or that can happen spontaneously in this process of intense exchange and sharing.
0: Yeah. No, that's beautiful. And I think you, like, you touched upon quite crucial aspects. One is this notion of the surplus and also the collectivity itself becoming almost like a ability to expand and contract, but also the collectivity itself becoming a kind of member of a group. But then you mentioned in and of itself, it's not perhaps enough or it's not, let's say, a value in and of itself, but what it makes possible what it generates, what it kind of brings forth, which cannot be brought forward individually. So
1: when we look at it from the, let's say, practical point of view, of (laughs) course, collective always can achieve and, you know, make more than one individual. At the same time, collectivity, especially this kind of a long way of working together is a method, is a method of working so that Mm -hmm. it also, the view on collectivity has been changing, I would say, drastically in the last two decades. At some point, this prevalent paradigm of individual often made genius got dismantled and also, in a way, deconstructed from all these multiple voices. And after two decades, collectivity, after being very popular at some mm-hmm. point, became, let's say, both a choice and necessity. So it is something that kind of, I think, outlives all these ebb and tides of the art world in terms of popularity. Mm. And it is also a personal choice. And it is always, especially in this kind of uh, work like ours, choice that one renews you know not every year but every five years you renew this idea do mm. i want to continue <laughs> with that? And, <laughs> and necessity because we we live in a challenging time and being a part of the collective and being immersed in all these others processes of collectivity is a political thing and all this kind of uh, informal knowledge that we learn from each other while being together, it's also quite helpful and applicable in any different situations that we are finding ourselves in. When you are negotiating certain conditions, so different kind of politicality can mm. be generated. Out of it. Also, to be realist, just wanted to say that collectivity is sometimes also very tiring because it involves this process of continuous dialogue, continuously trying to achieve a consensus, or continuously trying to question the very foundation of the situation we are in.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to give the example of a kind of musical band let's say, people who make music together and uh, both the potentiality and the challenges that are encompassed and this kind of time-based Revaluation, or like am I in the <laughs> right place like where are we going or questioning each other I never had kind of long-lasting band in my life but I always admired the way I'll say bandwidth you know like without the age so it's, there's a kind of collective wisdom that happens when a small group of people comes together but of course this I mean especially for example after experiencing a moment like the Gezi Park in 2013 that was for me in a way the first time I mean, I spoke and I heard about it a lot, but it was for me that moment of, in a way, a true sense of collectivity, which is much bigger than the band or much bigger than the smaller group, but something that, in a way, attracts people around it and emanates a kind of emancipatory energy almost. I don't know where I'm leading with this, but maybe we can turn towards learning because in a sense, learning is also a very much a site of collectivity. In any kind of learning setting, I always say that the most you learn from is from your cohort, your colleagues or people you are studying together with. Then maybe this can be a kind of good tie-in to discuss a little bit of VHV Academia and hear from you how that emerged and how that's going on and where you see it heading as well, in a way.
1: Our collective work primarily was until the establishment of VHV Academia, determined by the genre of the exhibition. Hmm. So we did many different projects, but most of them had this kind of uh, exhibition-based structure. And since the very beginning, we have been viewing the exhibition as a format, as a tool, if you would like to call it. We thought of it as a way to intervene so that each exhibition is an intervention in the existing social and cultural and also temporal space. At the same time, doing so many exhibitions also kind of emanated the idea that one can look at Owen's work Mm. as a series of ongoing kind of activity. And almost in a sense that one is always more or less working on the same exhibition, being kind of stretched over sometimes several decades. And um, Each exhibition is also a proposal. In a sense that from this specific historical and geographical point of view perspective, you are proposing something that can be rendered as an alternative, as a proposal for a different kinds of relations and also power relations. Mm-hmm. And while establishing Wechave Academia, that happened in 2018, we actually wanted to test a different format and to be dedicated to this really intense process of exchange between the participants. Because with an exhibition, when the exhibition is open, this is more or less always like a pinnacle of that process. Of course, we know about many wonderful examples of exhibitions in time, but that evolve in time. But usually, you know, the pinnacle of the exhibition is an opening. So we wanted something that has a different rhythm, that actually with the moment of opening, it starts. Mm -hmm. It starts to unfold so that you actually don't know how the whole process will develop. And uh, exhibition can also be seen as a, let's say, a huge dating site, like a place of Various encounters where people, artists, audience are meeting each other, and sometimes people are meeting via objects or via ideas. So, we wanted actually to deepen and to intensify this magic of encounter mm-hmm. so that we enable an encounter between the participants of the program of Bekave Academia, numerous artists, cultural workers also local participants of Zagreb, local cultural and uh, political scene, and that the intensity of these encounters can produce something that is unpredictable and it really depends on the energy of the exchange between all of us. And uh, also to mention to the audience who are not familiar with the program of VHV Academia, it is uh, tuition-free program and uh, usually we are including about 8 to 12 participants and we were very much inspired by homeworks program mm-hmm. from beirut initiated by Christina Tome so in a sense some of our structure of the program also relied on this idea of visiting and resident professors and this idea of intensive so that some of these encounters before the pandemic the encounters between the participants and the visiting professors for example lasted for two weeks Mm -hmm. of an ongoing process of being together and with the pandemic this situation was reconfigured as you can imagine because we are also immersed in educational processes and many things were
0: Yeah, so maybe we can return to the pandemic. But before that, I just wanted to underline, I mean, you really elaborated beautifully, like the potentials and the shortcomings of the exhibition as a format. And I'm also feeling that this kind of shift towards the educational or incorporating something that's more generative. In a sense, comes also as a need in response to perhaps kind of the exhibition format or the way it circulates objects crystallized, especially in the last decade, quite seriously to the point that, at least my observation in relation to let's say large format exhibitions such as biennials and things like that, that it came to a saturated point where you couldn't imagine almost a next step. The idea of a generative occasion, the idea of bringing people together and letting things emerge from that encounter makes perfect sense as well.
1: Absolutely. It's also about letting go of the control. Because usually in the process of uh, curating or installing the exhibition, there is lots of uh, control being involved in the positive sense of meaning, in the sense that either from the curatorial or artistic point of view, this execution needs to follow certain vision. But in the educational process, to be able to be immersed in it, a lot of control needs to be released in the sense that one needs to. Believe in the process. And this is a very, I would say, delicate and. Uh, um. Challenging process because no matter how we claim that we are interested in this non-hierarchical knowledge, knowledge from below, being in a position of an organizer or a host, it always involves a certain kind of a, not only hierarchy but responsibility. And with letting
0: absolutely
1: go of the control, then in the process of this kind of education, because this is really small and independent type of activity it is possible to share and to divide both the responsibility for each other and for the process, how the things will, you know, develop in future. So it's, yeah. it's really, in that sense, refreshing and, uh, again, we are coming back to the collectivity because <laughs> <laughs> each time we call it uh, generations. So far we did three generations of Wekawe academia, only one in so-called old normal circumstances. Mm and to during the pandemic. And um, I would say that after the three editions of BHB Academia, each generation is almost like a kind of a temporary collective. Mm-hmm. There's also other professors and people who are part of the process, but also looked from the kind of more wider perspective. These kind of programs also like spaces, smaller galleries or centers, there also forming their own collective process, more like forming a community, something that is active quite close to a Hali project.
0: Yeah, completely. I was curious if you had if there is a kind of way to also engage these kind of intergenerational, these groups in an intergenerational manner? Or is there a kind of, are you imagining a kind of continuation or is it just like this intense experience and then everybody goes their own way? I think part of appropriating in a way the academic or educational formats also comes with their own baggage and maybe the hierarchy is one of them and the other one is this kind of, you have this beautiful moment and then it gets dispersed, or is there a way to continue? Should it continue?
1: It always continues. And uh, it continues at different, let's say, density and intensity. Because this process usually lasts for, before the pandemic, it was for nine months. It's a long mm-hmm. time. So one also needs, and then with the pandemic, we were shortening it a little bit because part of the program is happening online. And although this offers these moments of uh, some kind of uh, togetherness, uh, being together, people get so tired of this mm. endless Zoom sessions and stuff. But nevertheless, one also needs a moment of pause. So in between two generations, in between two programs, because these are the moments of kind of gathering this energy inward and outward. Mm -hmm. And to be able to do that, I think we all need this also a precious time to reflect, to think, also to integrate all those experiences. And you mentioned something very important, John and this is this intergenerational dialogue. And when we are talking about our origins and specificities, how VHV came together, was also very much thanks to generosity of the previous uh, generation of artists on the local scene. And you know some of them like Mladen Stilinovich, Sanjay Ivekovic, Goran Terbuljak, and uh, Tomislav Gotovac. They were, in a sense, our informal professors. Mm -hmm. And in Croatia, at that time after the war of the 90s with this sudden breakage of the continuity, we found ourselves in this very enclosed, very patriarchal, nationalistic, xenophobic, claustrophobic environment. And uh, this generation of people were the ones, they were not teaching at the academies, but they kind of were our informal tutors. And friends, and they share their knowledge, their books, catalogs, and stuff. And this was really unique in a sense that through that, they shared their cultural capital, mm. they share their contacts. And uh, out of that generosity, we were able to emerge as a group, but also the whole generation of cultural workers. So we always stress that we are learning from the artists and with the artists. And artists are, I would say, crucial, crucial agents in these processes of learning. And with Wechave Academia, because at the time when we started it, we were already established as a collective and we wanted to share our cultural capital and knowledge and insights with next generations. And these encounters, although sometimes this intensity became quite challenging both to us and to participants, it kind of changes everything. Mm -hmm. So it's really quite touching to observe these things shifting and people's practices and people's lives being changed through that. Yeah, and This is collectivity. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, you touched upon this kind of community or almost communal aspect of knowledge exchange. And in a sense, I was wondering, because now, especially with the pandemic, and I learned that like two-thirds of the generations have been through pandemic, how does, in a way, or does Zagreb come into play? Or does this question of a location become a thing? Or are the participants from all around? Or like, how does that work?
1: program remains anchored in Zagreb. So we are Mm. quite proud of that we insist that it is a Zagreb program because part of its ideas and uh, inspiration came from the fact that this is a semi-peripheral situation that has lots of uh, let's say informal knowledge to be transmitted and that also somehow staying and learning about local context for example of Zagreb it gives this kind of a uh, temporary relief for being kind of shifted
0: mm-hmm.
1: off-center so that
0: so the participants moved to zagreb or are from zagreb
1: yes they moved to zagreb and uh, we had in the first generation four participants from zagreb and then program became more and more international And because we had, apart from the pandemic situation, we had also serious of devastating earthquakes, which happened during our first generation. So they coincided with the pandemic. So the second generation, in that sense, I think was Maybe the biggest, let's say, gift and experience when all of the sudden all these talks and, uh, let's say, meditations about collectivity, responsibility, mutual care, all of the sudden with these two crises, crisis of pandemic and an earthquake, became tested. So, (laughs) in a way that life pushed us to really practice what we were preaching. Mm. And in that sense, what we all generated as a group. And uh, we also need to mention that Bekhawe Collective and Bekhawe as an organization here based in Zagreb, it was always a very small structure. So members of collective, four people. Members of Zagreb team, again, four people. Women, And mostly. And it means that at that time of the crisis, both participants and us from the organizational point of view, we in a way care for each other in this unique way, because this is what can be generated through this kind of a huge crisis, more like anti fragility. And less as a resilience because Mm. antifragility is this new thing that happens in unprecedented circumstances. Something that we didn't know that we actually have Mm. or that we can do it. And in that sense, that was the most valuable lesson. And previous generation that ended this November, so two months ago, was a combination of online and offline. And with the offline, we were very happy to host Alessandro Petty and Sandy Hilal from DAR. And they were also professors in the first generation. And we talked a little bit about this dynamic of host and guest. Mm-hmm. And this is something very interesting because as a host, there is this also obligation to host and also right to host. And lots of writing and teaching and also artistic projects done by Dar is about reversing these redesigned roles of host and guest. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, maybe one of the most wonderful achievements within the Academia that we have been continuously trying to shift or to destabilize a little bit of this kind of dynamic. So we met in person for the very first time in July this year in the framework of an ongoing project initiated by Alessandra and Sandy called the Tree School. And the concept of the Tree School, there was also one edition of the Tree School in Istanbul. So it is an ongoing program, almost like commons, so that this concept can be adapted and uh, appropriated to different kinds of educational situations. And we realized that the Tree School is a fantastic device for the pandemic times because it involves being in nature. It involves meeting under the tree. And uh, Sandy and Alessandro wanted the whole group, the whole professorial team and all participants to meet in nature. So we met on the mountain of Slemet, near Zagreb, and we spent wonderful six days together. And that was the pinnacle of last edition. And for the future, for the next generation, uh, we would like to have more of this kind of uh, physical encounters, mm. at least two. we hope that pandemic will allow us to meet again, because this is such a dramatic shift. One cannot achieve this kind of energy in Zoom.
0: Yeah. No, totally, and also the image of the tree is like a gathering around the tree is like something that's been around for a long, long times. And the, for example, I'm reminded of the chinaralte, which is like this in any village or town. There is a sycamore tree, and usually the common space, or let's say, I mean, kind of public space on that scale would be under and around the sycamore tree where people would gather. And I think this is common in Anatolia, in uh, around Greece I've seen, and maybe other places. And also maybe... Like not to sound too pragmatic, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about like, is there an outcome or is there a kind of uh, expectation, quote unquote, on behalf of the academia from the participants or what what is being generated through this experience?
1: So I said that the program is tuition free and uh, it also offers scholarships. To participants. So this is something that it is quite important, not only because of this act of generosity, but because with the pandemic and also generally the emerging artists and younger generations are really very affected by this precarization of the cultural field. And uh, offering stipends, it enables people to dedicate their time. So it means that they can work a little bit less to be dedicated to the process of their own artistic research and to be able to also immerse themselves in the process. So we are expecting dedication of time and energy. And we are also expecting a kind of openness. Openness to try something new, to experiment, to, again, a little bit adopt a little bit of this beginner's mind. And we insist that we all have rights to make errors and trials, very much in the spirit of errorism by etc. group. And uh, it means that while claiming right to make errors, we are widening up this potential space of artistic production, of cultural production, in a sense, not only that the mediums or gestures or vocabulary of what is artistic practice, what is a knowledge production can be reconfigured, but that in this process, we can also be, in that sense, forgetful about what we learned so far about ourselves and about the others and about the world. And this is a kind of uh, alchemy, but at the same time, it is an outcome of joint and shared time and resources and perspectives. Not to idealize it too much, yeah. it also often involves lots of negotiations, sometimes these kind of contradictory situations, or sometimes even moments when our perspectives are Flashing. But this is like a melting pot.
0: <laughs> I think the notion of alchemy is also part of the tricky baggage of the educational kind of format. Because I remember Ivan Illich talks about how the 12-year education system was established. And Ivan Illich says that it's been established in relation to or in parallel to the idea of alchemy. That 12 years and 12 steps it takes to turn stone into gold. And 12 years it takes... A wild, free member of so- to a member of society <laughs> <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> yeah. this notion of resources and the economical reality is something of a recurrent theme in this, especially this season's conversations. So I want to, and you touched upon like that is kind of supported. So I wanted to also hear a little bit of your take on relationship to resources, how to kind of reach resources, how to sustain this economical reality and condition, how to distribute resources and maybe even how to grow, of course, in light of the experience of VHV and Wehave academia. But what would be your take on this?
1: The This is a crucial issue. It, It calls really for more just redistribution of it. But this is something that is also, when we look at the global situation, quite frustrating because in the beginning of the pandemic, and this also reflected to the art world and to the educational field, there was this feeling almost like a honeymoon of the pandemic with this idea that the relationships, the the power dynamics can be shifted and subverted, that the amount of time that we are immersed in production can be dismantled more in a favor of of a free time or this kind of a more ecological approach to everyday life and cultural production, we ended up with the old same paradigm with even more, let's say, pressures of productivity, pressures of being present, being visible, being in this continuous apparatus of production. And we've been talking a lot about this year in Bank Academia, and this will be the topic of the next edition about eco-social practices, how eco-social practices can be not only translated into cultural and educational field, but what kind of eco-social practices we, we generate from the space of culture and education. And it has a lot to do also with imagination, with imagining things, imagining and speculating, but at the same time, If we as a group or if people who are in the process of some production can, in a way, practice and advocate for not only for more just relations so that everyone is paid in the process, but also to legitimize certain kind of radical sharing, radical sharing that is so anti-capitalist in its basis so that it is being either attacked by copyright law or different kinds of for example criminalizations of solidarity so these kind of things i think need to continue form the core of the curriculum and uh, we who are in the process of forming and excelling institutions either on a smaller independent scale or in this kind of a more formal big institutions are responsible for bringing more of these values into the institutional field. And uh, sometimes the culture can be the place where these practices can be in a way legitimized so that when they are under different kinds of legal pressures, they can claim this right
0: of freedom. Mm-hmm. But to do that, all institutions still operate within certain frameworks and structures, but the cultural field seems to be like still, I don't know for how long more, but be the most welcoming context for experimentation in regards to this notion of distribution that you discussed and also the question of sharing However, I have to put kind of a reservation, I mean, this is something I've obviously been struggling having been a kind of cultural producer for more than two decades as well. Is like uh, there is always a kind of push and pull between the support, the structures that support you, the degrees of control and the kind of what you do within those frameworks. And I think that's as long as it's an healthy struggle, that's probably should be ongoing.
1: I understand and appreciate. What you're saying, it's also quite realistic. I mean, I agree with you, but somehow maybe to continue with this moment of smaller organizations, maybe some of the things, at least in this smaller biotops Mm -hmm. are more easily implemented. But the question is whether and how to to change the very system, because these kind of shifts are, let's say, just more or less symbolic acts in the way that they will not leave a more impact on the society at large. So it also calls, I think, for thinking about the politicality of place of culture and how we as cultural workers are also, in a way, participating in producing perhaps and hopefully this new, let's say, new politicality much wider than the artistic field. And of course, this is an ongoing struggle with lots of defeats and fatigue. And at the same time, the pressure for this shift is so big and everywhere that I think it's interesting to participate from the position of art and culture in those processes.
0: And there is a responsibility of the prototype as well, because most artistic practices like mine included states to be a prototype or a model, but then there is a responsibility of making that model or there is a responsibility of imagining that as well. And that's perhaps when it will link to actual kind of political action. I think the question comes to that crossroads, like whether you will insist on inhabiting the given economical environment or whether there are other possibilities. and. Perhaps this could be a good moment to open up to questions.
1: Just wanted to say something about the idea of prototype. I think it's a wonderful idea and it has lots of utopian potential still ascribe to it, and I always think of uh, something what one of your first guests, our dear friend Stephen Wright, mentioned this idea of one-to-one scale, so that sometimes there are ongoing projects and ideas uh, stemming from the field of art or culture or education, but from the very way how they are taught. They are not just prototypes, they are the real So I believe in these prototypes that can at the same time be the the real
0: thing. That's fantastic. And a good note to Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Ahali conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email.
2: Please let me begin with some compliments to Anna. Like, Great to hear you live. And your Istanbul Biennial was the first one that I consciously wandered around. Like I've been to a couple others, but yeah, that was the one that really hit. But my question will be on uh, art pedagogy. So yeah, the thing is, why do you think the art world within the academia are not pushing hard enough to not innovate anything like within the conventional institutions? When you look at it, let me please expand my question a bit. Like when you look at the at the companies, technological companies, let's say, they kind of always look for some bright ideas and then they buy these when they are young and then go big with these, kind of exploit these bright ideas. But when you look at the academy, they don't seem to be learning from examples. They have a academy might be one a task might have been like another one. But when we look at even the twentieth century, there are like many other models based on alternative art but the academia is very reluctant to try on these. What might be the reason behind it? There are several
1: reasons. I come from country and from the cultural field where the educational system is really traditional and to, I'd say, majority also quite conservative. But it wouldn't be fair to generalize. I agree with you, Sharp, that this is like a prevalent paradigm that things are kind of more stiff, and not so experimental in academia. And also with these new trends in society oriented toward commercialization, toward this kind of uh, almost like a capitalist brand that educational program needs to be useful, creates in many situations an atmosphere of, let's say, quite hierarchical situations. But I believe that these things can be and should be dismantled, I believe that, for example, professors or students or participants in some educational programs, be it of experimental, independent or formal structure, they also have an agency in that process. So instead of waiting for the system to change itself, it won't change itself unless there are some more, let's say, capital-driven urgencies, why system would, in a way, shift, we can shift it through our own participation. I believe that agency of professors, of certain groups, communities around also academia are able to generate this kind of a surplus. It's more difficult because sometimes one can also encounter the resistance from the institution in a sense that they are not in favor of this kind of behavior. And also to mention that there are indeed many intriguing educational programs in the field of contemporary art and contemporary culture that are quite in line with what we are trying to achieve with BHV academia. So I already mentioned homeworks program in Lebanon, Roa Academy in Dakar, Dai Roaming Academy. So there are numerous programs. And I think that to be able to influence the system we shall be more in contact and uh, share methodologies and also like specific ways of working together.
0: I think I'm more excited about the idea of this new conglomeration or new kind of coming together of this alternative pedagogical project. So maybe we can switch to Jing's question. She's saying nowadays there's a surge of DAOs, which I looked up Google And it means decentralized autonomous organizations as social, creative, economic collectives where collectivity is mandated spiritually, socially and through code.
3: Hi, guys. I came came to the room so I can kind of elaborate on that. I guess I'm really interested. I mean, I guess we can put the technologies aside. But we can say that I think the world is like waking up to collectiveness. And I think people are starting to think whether or not it's about blockchain. I I think that's just one part of it. Generally, in our collective consciousness, I think people, even in the mainstream, like outside of art, they're, they're becoming more aware and moving towards like collectivity. I'm wondering, you know, what you think as as a curator collective in the art as one of like the pioneering curatorial collectives really as a thought leader what do you think maybe people get right or wrong about like infrastructures that allow for, encourage, or even mandate, like collectivity?
1: It's a very good question. I think maybe a crucial one for the current state of affairs, and it also has to do, you're right, with what we've been trying to develop. I think infrastructure is a key word in your point of view, and this is something, I don't know if you were present while we were talking about this. Not so much about the economy of sharing and uh, this kind of token values being then either probed within the art world or so that art world serves as a kind of utopian testing ground for them. We're talking more about how from this perspective of radical or a little bit of different way of rethinking how the institutions are structured about their foundations, how to then affect from that position the society. And it is A kind of, um, I would say, a conundrum, because I think no one actually has a right answer to that. And there are, I think, lots of possibilities and also lots of dangers related uh, to that, as you also explained in your question. But maybe I can answer with the example. This project actually started from academia, which is quite interesting. And uh, it is called Pirate Care. And pirate care is uh, some kind of a collective effort, a network of activists, scholars, and practitioners who actually fight against the criminalization of solidarity, mostly related to so-called migration crisis, but also related to different kinds of monetization of the care. And the way how they are rethinking the idea of collective and society and collectivity from the perspective of the project is really one of the i would say rare examples i believe that there are uh, also many more but not necessarily i know about them how for example healthcare housing also access to knowledge because as we know we mentioned that a little bit knowledge is uh, you know commodity and uh, how all these things actually can be dismantled by initiating different kinds of participation. And our colleagues from Care they also initiated a few years ago a project called Public Library. We exhibited and invited Public Library in numerous of uh, VHV projects. For example, they participated in really useful knowledge exhibition in Reina Sofia that actually thematized this idea of uh, knowledge production and uh, formation of the collective through this kind of exchange. And Public Library, they have their website, called The Memory of the World, but somehow it's easier for me to try to answer this challenging question with some of the concrete examples. So it is a repository of digitalized books that are abolishing copyright, in a sense that they are claiming this, unfortunately, quite endangered idea of public library, of this way of sharing books, And knowledge, because as you know, in many countries, public libraries are more restricted, being in a way also dismantled with this recent, recent crisis and uh, they have this beautiful sentence that everyone can be librarian so that in a way we can encourage our members of our little circles and bigger circles to fight for this kind of uh, let's say really radical collectivity so I think in some cases this can be more than just a token just something very abstract or spiritual so I, I think I'm, again, getting back to what Stephen Wright calls as this kind of a prototype that is more than a prototype and that potentially it has, I would say, very powerful effect on different communities and also maybe something that we shall have in mind while thinking about it.
0: Thank you. And for the links, we will for sure put them on the episode note further. But I have a question to Jing because during our conversation with Nate of Thompson, for example, this question of the NFTs raised up again and his take on it was like of course it seems like a certain thing at this point in time but it also has say other potentials that are not necessarily kind of limiting or that could be an alternative to the existing economies that run the art world or the art industry. So I'm curious like if you would have anything to add about your question.
1: Yes I'm also googling a little bit about decentralized autonomous organization and apart from the definition and the description. Maybe you can Jean, de- deliberate a little bit more on some examples. And uh, I have a feeling: Are you critical about it, or you are more suspicious, or maybe what is your take? I
3: think I'm generally very, I'm on the optimistic side of things. I think we get really easily distracted by things like super crazy prices, gas fees, and like barriers tree for most people, including the art world. Also in terms of like technological knowledge. So I think like a lot of the things in the space is super duper distracting, but actually there is a lot of potential and a lot of different variations. Like I think with NFTs, I think we've only scratched the surface of it. Sound XYZ, that's that's an interesting project. But that's a project that I find super interesting because it's trying to use NFT. I think what's really interesting is like the media is a currency. And that's a really interesting way to think of media. And it's also a super interesting way to think of money. And when we think of like social money i think you know you mentioned a little bit before like tokens like people are thinking of that but i'm actually much more interested in like nfts themselves the nft art or like nft collectibles them being taken as social money that's super interesting for me and actually the technology allows for a lot more variation and it's not just maybe like one static image that can be collected there's a lot i think to think about in terms of ownership thinking about something as an asset that you store and how people connect that thing, that thing that you have, like a possession of yours that exists only when you look at your wallet, how people connect so deeply with that to their identity. And I think there is a lot like to think about there especially when you have when the technology also allows for generative NFTs or upcoming it's dynamic NFTs dynamic NFTs are NFTs that actually get modified without you doing anything about it so you can own something but it can just like change you know like a pet like can just change or grow without you doing anything and that without you doing anything meaning it can also change because other people are doing something on that same blockchain so like the possibilities are just bird- Right now, and I'm super interested about that. On the other side of the table, you've also got um, DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations, and that's kind of coming into the tech world like really crazy. And that I think that's the main anchor as to why. Even the tech world is thinking so much about collectivity. And I think it comes... So basically what a DAO is like you have, it's an organization where what happens and how decisions are taken is written in code. So... To form a DAO, you basically code like how you want this organization to look like and how you want it to function. And it's typically very decentralized, as in there is no like one leader, although maybe you have like one person organizing, but you take actions collectively. So for example, you've got things like pleaser DAO. Pleaser DAO is like a it's like an art fund basically, but it's a DAO. And so the community chooses like what art they want to buy and they all pitch in, they all pitch in money to, to buy that art, whether it's a physical art or NFT art. And then you've got also like many different kinds of DAOs, you know, this curated group where you've got like amazing designers, amazing musicians, amazing like project managers, and they're just doing things for one another in exchange for that kind of local currency. So it's like a hyper local currency that you have within a DAO. So these like mini economies are emerging and each of them are, you know, so-called decentralized. And there's a very strong social factor as well. So it's it's really interesting. I think like what I'm thinking about, like why I think this specifically interesting is like collectivity has become such a keyword. I guess it's just interesting to hear about. I think radical collectivity, as you mentioned in these projects, I think that's always really inspiring. Even if they're happening in a very very niche group called the art world or the academic art world, I think it's still very important to have those existing and i love looking at these examples and i also love sharing these examples with, like say people who are in daos because like the most interesting thing i think is also that these examples some of them happened like way before like years before all these get into the mainstream right so that's always that always.
1: when does the dao appear when when it started?
3: Actually, I would say it
1: started. Maybe
3: you see the first DAOs appearing in 2017, super new, but one of the first few, like very proper big scale art DAO, doll, like DAOs made artists, is called Terra Zero. Terra Zero is super interesting. They created a DAO. And the point was like, what if everyone could collectively own a part of the forest? How would we make decisions towards that forest? So a kind of like, you know, thinking about ownership in their ways. But this year, DAOs started to like, you, you have a lot, a lot of DAOs it can mean I think infrastructure is also key because you have DAOs that exist only as like a telegram or a Discord chat. But then you also have DAOs who are like issuing their own tokens. You have DAOs that are, you know, very big. They function almost like a a company. But this year we see a lot of them. But I think next year we're gonna see so much more of them
0: thanks for the introduction jink because i as i said in the beginning i'm totally illiterate about this but it seems to have also potentials for let's say a kind of participatory democracy or even like other layers that can in a way decision make collective decision making and stuff like that which could have also let let's say political repercussions
3: absolutely that's a way some people are thinking about them they're thinking about them as like tiny nation states you know little singapores around the world
1: (laughs) online i also need to confess my deeply analog approach (laughs) To collectivity. I'm joking a little bit, but I really need to research this a little bit more. But I think it's very impressive how you are connecting these forms of Daos to the idea and notion of collectivity. And uh, perhaps the best way to answer the question would be to take part in some of it, to actually probe and see how does it really work out. Because uh, it's kind of always tricky to judge from the outside, especially if you are not familiar with it. So I'm curious, Jing, about your participation in these things. Are you also very active in this kind of things. And for example, this one that you uh, shared, TerraZero sounds quite interesting at this point
3: i also have a confession and which is that i'm not actually i am researching a lot and observing a lot and i have many friends who are part of many DAOs. but myself i'm not part of i may be part of like a few but not too much because of the barrier of entry which is which is cost like financial cost like you have to buy some tokens to enter the DAO and even if it's something small like say 15 dollars or euros a month that's still something you know and I would still think twice so unfortunately like a lot of entry to DAO is still like even if it's an affordable amount like it's still something that you have to buy in like yeah you have to buy in so but I can recommend you looking at some DAOs. I mean, Terra Zero is a great example. I'm not sure if it's still functioning because it was one of the earliest, like in 2017. Um, another one is Black Swan DAO by the people who run Trust in Berlin. So yeah, I think Black Swan DAO is the idea that you kind of, as an artist, you pitch your project, and if the DAO, if people in the DAO likes it, like they upvote it, then they are contributing enough so that you can actually materialize your project with the with the funds coming from the DAO.
0: Mm. So it's like a collective funding, like co-funding apparatus.
3: Yeah, that's actually how a lot of DAOs operate, like a collective funding apparatus, exactly like that, yeah. But some of them are, for, are like a lot more flex, like these
1: are down. I need to clarify mentioning the private care and public library. In this context, I believe that there is a huge difference related to these endeavors in the sense that private care and public library, they're actually abolishing token, abolishing this kind of uh, monetization of certain values. And uh, there are more like, uh, how to call it, anti-capitalist versions of this idea. But I'm now really intrigued to learn more about it in a sense that there can be also, I think, different kind of traps. Related to Dao approach, as you also uh, Jing mentioned it in your explanation. So that uh, when we look at, for example, Bitcoin or Tor or different kind of let's say endeavors in digital realm that maybe originally had this alternative, or in moments also utopian feel about it, they can also easily be hijacked. But I think this is also what is exciting about this concept because they obviously can create values, very, very rapid sense. And this is being co-created with others. It's interesting to delve into this terrain more and to lurk into what are the possibilities, what are the threats, and what are actual exchanges between people in these kind of spaces.
0: Yeah. And I'm also reminded by Hakim Bey and his concept of temporary autonomous zone, (Taz). In a kind of recent preface to a recent edition, I remember Hakim Bey writing, because the Internet 1.0 was also coming with this promise of, let's say, collectivity. And Hakim Bey was very much writing about these temporary autonomous zones, almost like becoming pirate enclaves, and that the Internet was the site of it. But in a later edition, he was writing that let's say he finds a room like full of play train enthusiasts can be more of a temporary autonomous zone rather than the internet at that point in time. And it got kind of more and more commercialized even after that. (laughs) Yeah, But that's something worth looking back to. And I, of course, also approach with a kind of question marks but I'm also very much intrigued and also on the one that is like in a way Anna said in the beginning like collectivity is not a value in and of itself like what it generates or what it leads to could be also like the crucial question and I think that's important to keep in mind nevertheless I'm also not naive about the fact that everything needs kind of monetary resources at this point point in time and even the the most let's say free and pirate internet organization will also need electricity, power, money, and so much more to run. But nevertheless, in terms of the experimentation, both of these kind of directions, examples that Anna gave and the examples that you gave Jing are very interesting and I think that's like a of course I'm sure it will change shape. But whether or not it will be totally recuperated like the social media of today, into subscriptions, this kind of, let's again, like large corporations running the show kind of situation, or whether it will remain decentralized and maintain that independence, so to say, will be very interesting to follow up and observe and how each route can take shape in reality. I have no idea, but I'm sure both sides are investing a lot of energy and thinking to this (laughs) I can already tell.
1: I can see some potentially new DAO prototype coming out of Ahali conversations.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's see. This was really good. I think we had almost like two different sessions. But And also thank you, Jing, for this contribution, which was very interesting. But going back to Anna, I mean, thank you so much. This was super valuable. And also... See in real life, like not only a conversation, but the curiosity and the generosity of your approach was very visible. So thanks so much for that. And thank you, Sarp and Jing, for the questions and interventions one more time. Or Anna, if you have something to say.
1: Just that I really enjoyed uh, being with you and the format that you created together. And also, I would like to thank you for your participation and time together greetings to istanbul and i hope to see you one day in person but we're gonna start next year in march and april the new generation of behavior academia so i will share with Jan and with you our guests and curriculum and maybe we can have one session together quite informal like to check so i hope that we will be able also to meet In person one day, but until then, I owe you at least one more digital encounter.
0: That's amazing. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you and uh, hugs from Zagreb and take care.
0: Thank you so much, Anna. See you. Looking forward to that next session. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining us and staying until the very end. Notions of control and letting go, the delicacies of collectivity and sharing remain to be key concerns within the cultural field. Anadevich demonstrated this essential political dimension, not only in the way she talks about these matters, but also in the way she practiced such care and curiosity within our conversation. Make sure to check out the episode notes to find out more about what we've discussed today and you can also visit our website that space or get some visual insights on Instagram via that Podcast. highly Ahali Conversations are produced by Aslaltai and Sarprenk Uzar, with Daria Yıldız as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Ilf Soouxu and with music by Group SES. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or whatever works for you. This was a highly conversations with me, Janal and we hope to see you next time.